Dear God, uh, I simply ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable, acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, before we dive into this parable, uh, where Jesus tells us the answer like that we're going to find about like who our friend is supposed to be. We look at our big question. We should examine a little bit about the context of why Jesus tells this parable. We're, we're dropping in on Jesus's earthly ministry. He's been teaching his disciples when suddenly an old Testament lawyer, a Jewish lawyer comes and puts him to the test. And, uh, now, when you hear lawyer, we're not talking modern law in the sense of like a man in a courtroom making an argument. We're thinking about the Old Testament Jewish law that this man is an expert in. Right? This lawyer stands up and he tries to put Jesus to the test by asking him how he can earn eternal life. Uh, now, Jesus does something surprising at that point. Right? He could have tried to answer him. And miraculously would have gone one of two ways. Either he would have said something about the law. He says, actually, the man answers rightly and could have said something that turned away all these crowds of sinners that came to him and they might have felt judged by him, right? Or he might have said, you know, it doesn't matter, in which case everybody would have said, well, don't you believe in the law? And instead of getting trapped in that kind of thing, Jesus flips the question back around on the guy. Well, you know, what do you, how do you read it? Uh, let that be a lesson for my like wannabe evangelists and apologists in the room. Uh, when people ask you a question, best, best way to handle that is just, well, what do you think? Um, Jesus is very good at that. Uh, when people come to him with questions, he's like, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, actually, he does now. He just says, what do you think? Right? Uh, the lawyer responds, and he responds with what would have been like a very common answer uh, at the time of the writing of the New Testament. Would have been very conf- uh, uh would have been very confident about this answer. It's quoted a lot in other extra biblical literature, other Hebrew literature or Jewish literature at the time. It's taken from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, and it's simply to love God and love your neighbor. That was a like a, a standard formula in first century Juda- Judaism. Love God and love your neighbor. Now, Jesus, in what can only be described as the like greatest power move of all time, right? He decides to tell the lawyer that he's right. Yeah, 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 love God, love your neighbor. Just do that perfectly and you'll live. That's how you gain eternal life. Just love God with everything that's in you and uh, your neighbor more than you. And then, uh, you know, you'll, you'll live. And immediately in verse 29, right, sensing his inability to keep that standard, we even get the, you know, the commentary from Luke saying, uh, you know, that he was seeking to justify himself in verse 29, Right? The lawyer tries to limit the gravity of what Jesus is saying. Um, do we have that? Can we flip to 29? There it is. Right? Tries to justify himself, and he limits by asking the question, who's my neighbor? Right? Who is my neighbor? He asks Jesus to define who a neighbor is. He wants to limit in some way this great hurdle that Jesus has put in front of him. Right? Okay, if I have to love my neighbor... And I have to love him, you know, as myself. I have to love him as much as I love myself. Uh, well, that's a tall order, especially for people I don't like, right? So let's just, well, let's define neighbor in a way that this is more accomplishable, right? Wants to, wants to zero in on who, who he has to love. Not everybody qualifies for this, 
lawyers love, right? There's surely there are people that he can ignore or write off. Not everyone is worthy of friendship. Not everyone can be his neighbor. If you recall last week, uh, we read from Proverbs 27.10 that uh, essentially said that when trouble comes, a near neighbor is better than a faraway brother. At its heart, if you think about this parable, what Jesus responds to here, at its heart, this parable arises because of a certain way of reading that proverb, that neighbors are great and maybe even greater than brothers, right? Uh, it, 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 a certain reading of that proverb says, well, yeah, only certain neighbors, right? Only certain people get to be true friends on a day of calamity, people I like or I want to be in my life. The story that Jesus tells, what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan, it arises as an answer to this Pharisee's longing for self-justification and uh, his exclusion of other people from his love. Now, you might at this point think, right, if you read this, if you've gotten this far in the narrative, you might think, what a silly man. What a silly, silly person to think that some people aren't worthy of your friendship. We, in 21st century America, we are so enlightened. We know that you're supposed to be friends with everybody, not supposed to bully people, not supposed to exclude people. We know that. And you would never, ever, ever in a million years feel this way, like somebody isn't worthy of your friendship. Well, first, I'd say if you feel that way, maybe the reason you feel that way is because of 2,000 years of the church teaching this parable has infected Western society in such a way that we put a high priority on treating everybody with love and caring for everybody and acceptance. Like that's actually something that is bled out from the church. And it's not something that all people everywhere have thought. And in fact, it wasn't what people thought in the ancient world where uh, there were strict stations in life, right? Social classes, racial histories, economic prospects, all of these things told you who you were and who you were going to hang out with. You couldn't just social climb, right? Like here in America, you can do that, but that was not the way in the ancient world. You were stuck with the people that you were with and you could not branch out. Right? And the reality is that's still how most of the world still operates in Asian culture, particularly like in honor, shame cultures around the world. You can't just treat everybody like they're your friend, right? Your grandparents are not your friend. They are worthy of honor and respect and they are not your equal. They are not somebody that you might need to love them, but your love for them is one of deference and honor, not of like some sort of mutual self-love. Uh, you have to earn it in most other cultures. You have to be worthy. And if we're really honest, right, I just want to press in even more on your personal lives. If we're really honest, this isn't even how we totally operate. Uh, when I was in elementary school, I had a buddy named Zach. Uh, and he knows about this story, so I can tell it. But I had a buddy named Zach who I did not get along with. Uh, both kind of loudmouths, very talkative. And we're in like third or fourth grade at this point. So we're try- trying to figure out who we are or whatever. And um, clamoring for you know our friend's attention and status within our friend group, being the man. And he ended up telling all my friends at one point that it was either him or me. They could be friends with him. Or they could be friends with me. And I mean, all my friends chose him. And so I got socially ostracized from the group and I got very sad and very lonely. And one day, I remember this, on the school bus, he was leaning over the seat and he was kind of making fun of me. And I just asked him, like, what did I ever do 
to make you like not want to be my friend, to make you hate me so much. You know what he said to me? He said, I would never be friends with somebody with a unibrow like yours. That is what he said to me. I still remember. It's still ingrained in my head, right? And you might think like, wow, Zach, what a terrible person. But what I would tell you is like, man, if you've spent any time around kids who have not been conditioned not to tell each other those kinds of things, right? We grow out of it because people tell us that's not nice. It's not that we don't think it anymore. We just grow out of saying it, right? Like we just grow out of being mean to each other in ways that are so obvious. I would say that we're still at heart kids who say those things, who think, I don't want to be friends with you because you're, you know, ugly or you're not going to help me. You're not, at the end of the day, you're not advantageous to me. I, you are you are not worth loving for me. You kind of annoy me, whatever it is, right? So how does Jesus challenge that attitude in this parable, right? Who is our neighbor? Who's supposed to be our friend? Look at me at verses 30 through 32. We'll, we'll dive in here and we'll, we'll look at our, our big question and our answer here. So verses 30 through 32, Jesus answers this lawyer's neighbor limiting question by telling a simple story with spiritual significance. That's all a parable is. It's just a simple story with normal things and normal people that has a spiritual significance. He tells him about a Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, down to Jericho which is actually a, uh, a trip north. Um, it takes about 17, it's about 17 miles to do the whole trip. And it was notoriously dangerous in the ancient world, uh, even beyond Jerusalem. Uh, the terrain is very rough very hilly, a number of caves that's uh, made for natural cover for people like robbers to hang out in, and then they would jump out, take all your stuff, and kill you, right? And this man falls prey to a band of such thieves, and he's beaten within an inch of his life. Now, two characters, Jesus says, pass along this same route. And uh, for the lawyer, he would have been excited to see them in the parable. Right When they show up, he's like, and then, oh, and these guys will definitely be of help, right? A priest and a Levite. The priest is a descendant of Aaron, who is the very first priest that God sets up to be an intercessor between God and his people so that they can approach him and be loved by him. The Levite came from the tribe of Israel that assisted the priest in their temple duties, would lug the stuff around uh, back when they were in the wilderness, but also would uh, clean and assist in teaching in the temple. Now, both men are prime candidates, like I said, to help this uh, Jewish man who has fallen on hard times, right? Uh, If we are thinking about um, their role in the people of God, their occupations, as outlined in Leviticus 12, 13, and 15, are literally to purify physically afflicted people. Right? It is their job to stop and help this guy. Right? But as the story goes, they pass by on the other side of the road. Why? Why would they do that if it's their job? There's a couple of answers people have posited over the years. Possibly, right? They were afraid of being uh, ceremonially unclean by touching uh, a dead body. If the man's really beaten as bad as it sounds like in here, where he has to be hoisted onto uh, uh, the man's donkey because he can't walk, he probably looks dead, right? Which means if they come near even enough to check his pulse and they touch him, they become ceremonially ceremonially unclean and they actually wouldn't be able to do their job anymore, right? Uh, They'd have to wait. They'd have to purify themselves and wait another seven days 
after touching a body. Uh, another possibility is that the robbers might still be around, right? If you think about it, if uh, in the ancient world, you know how you make sure that you get away with a crime? You don't leave witnesses, right? If this guy is still alive, it means you stumbled upon this scene while, he, while they weren't finished, which means they're still around, which means if you stay too long, you could be next, Right? Either way, Jesus paints these men as being unwilling to help their fellow Jew on his day of trouble. They're the opposite of the proverb we looked at last week. And either way, right, what we can boil it down to is there's nothing in it for them. There's nothing in it for them to love this man, to engage him, to move toward him. And uh, neither professionally, right, in becoming unclean and maybe Uh, not being able to work, or personally and risking their own lives. There's just nothing positive in this relationship for them. And so they pass by on the other side. And if we skip down a little to verses 36 through 37, we see that Jesus does not commend the actions of these two men, right? This brings us to the first answer to our question, whom are we to befriend, right? The very least we can say this, who Jesus is talking about. It's not the advantageous. Right? Like we're not supposed to befriend people who are just advantageous to us, right? Jesus denounces these two men who, who pass by on the other side because there's nothing in it for them. Meaning, you know, advantageous relationships are not the only ones we're supposed to have. Now, uh, I'm going to pick on the Greek system for a moment because um, I was in it in my undergrad. But like, every, I just want to also be clear that every organization can do this in their own way, even RUF, right? When I was an undergrad, uh, I came to um, my school. I went to Western Kentucky University, and I remember showing up there, and I met, like, one guy who told me that he uh, biked across the country the previous summer for Alzheimer's research, like raising money. He would raised over $100,000 that summer for Alzheimer's research. And uh, I was like, that's really impressive. I would like to be your friend. And then I met another guy who said, well, I, I spent like the summer, you know, uh, uh, doing dental work, like helping a dentist, like as a dental assistant, doing dental work in like Nicaragua for the summer. And then I met another guy who told me that he also had done something impressive this summer. And another guy who said he'd done. And I was like, wow, this is so amazing. I'm going to be all your guys' friends uh, because we were on like an honors retreat. And I thought like, this is the group I want to be in. Right? All these people who are so impressive and so amazing and maybe their impressiveness will rub off of me and maybe they can make me connections. And they told me, we're actually all part of the same fraternity. And I was like, I'm Russian. I wasn't going to be a Greek person before, but I'm going to be one now because being a part of that might make me impressive. Right? You can do the exact same thing with RUF. Right? Oh, all these heathens at this school, but, not, but I go to RUF. I'm not like the people who who drink or smoke or date girls who do, I don't know, um, drink, smoke, or chew. Sorry, date girls who do. That's like an old thing. Um, have you ever heard that phrase before? Is that just a Southern thing? You've heard it before? Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe it's just a Southern thing that I've now brought up here. But anyways, the point there being, right, like you can do it with any group where you think the point of this, this activity, the point of these friendships, the point of these relationships is – to further my life and my goals and what I want and what I need, right? And Jesus says, man, this is, that's the opposite 
of what real friendship is and what it means to look for a neighbor, to become a neighbor to somebody. Um, we're not supposed to just look for advantageous friendships. And th- think about your relationships for a moment, right? Uh, are you mostly friends with people who make you look better, right? Like, are you mostly friends with people who help your reputation? You might want to ask yourself why that is, right? It might be that you're just friends with them because they're good friends, right? I'm not, this whole parable, if you read it one way and you, and you, take, you take it in a certain way, you could make it discount everything we talked about last week about what good friendships look like. You're like, I guess I'm supposed to be in only friendships where I'm a doormat and I get emotionally abused and I'm horrible and everybody hates me all the time, right? I, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is if you're only in friendships, right, if the point of your friendships is really about what's in it for you, right, if, if everybody you can be a friend with, right, is what's in it for you, then really you're not a real friend at all is what Jesus is saying, is that, is that the point, uh, the bare minimum of what it looks like to be a friend is that it can't be what's in it for you. It has to be costly to you on some level, right? Are you, are most of your relationships beneficial, with you, beneficial to you with very little cost? And if, the, and if so, then you're not much better than these men who only stop for people that are easy, that, that help them, There's something in it for them. It's not supposed to be just about what we get out of our friendships. But if the priest and the Levite, right, if we think about that, if the priest and the Levite illustrate what we're not supposed to do, like what it means to not be a neighbor, right, to, to what it looks like to uh, look for friends in the wrong way, how are we to befriend in the right way, right? What does Jesus positively say about becoming a neighbor to the right person um, who, who qualifies as a good friend, well, who qualifies a good friend? Let's look at verse, verses 33 through 35. Uh, verses 33 through 35, we get a, a Samaritan shows up on the scene. Uh, and this would have been to like the lawyer's chagrin, right? Uh, the first two guys, he would have been like, yay, the heroes. And then they turn out to be total heels. And then this guy shows up and he would have been like, well, he's probably going to do something even worse, right? Maybe he'll finish the job. I don't know. But many years before Jesus told this story, the reason he, he would feel that way is that when Israel was defeated as a country and captured and taken away into exile by Assyria and Babylon, there were some Jewish people who stayed behind. And instead of worshiping uh, the God of Israel, they intermarried with the enemy, with Assyrians and Babylonians that moved into the town. And they worshiped their gods in conjunction with the God of Israel and they kind of mixed everything together. They started uh, worshiping on a different, in a different temple than the one that was in Jerusalem, meaning if God says he's at the temple in Jerusalem and you're worshiping at a different temple, pretty easy to figure out you're not worshiping the God who's in Jerusalem. Uh, because of this betrayal, right, they had even developed a, sort, a slightly different Bible than the rest of Israel. And like I said, they worshiped differently. Samaritans, in the eyes of the Jewish people, they were... A, like a schismatic, heretical, traitor, race traitor group. Like that's who they were. They were the scum of the ancient Israelite world. And that's probably why Jesus takes such great pains to emphasize just how much this Samaritan does to help this Jewish man that has fallen on hard times, who's been beat up and robbed. 
Look at all the verbs. There are actually three in each sentence in verse 34. Look at verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Right? More action happens in that verse than any of the other places uh, in the story. And uh, that the, probably the greatest contrast in the story is actually there in verse 34. Right? You've seen these two other guys pass by on the other side. And verse 34 starts with, he went to him. Right? He went to him. The other guys passed by on the other side, but he went to him. Whereas the other two valued their purity, the Samaritan risks getting his hands dirty. Whereas the other two guarded their physical safety, the Samaritan is willing to risk his life. That brings us to the, the second answer to our question, whom are we to befriend? Right? If we're not supposed to befriend the advantageous, the second answer might be this, everyone, right? Everyone, but especially those we find disadvantageous, which for the record is kind of everyone. We all have our own baggage and, and stuff we're going through, right? Everybody, but especially those we find disadvantageous. Those are the people who make good friends. Those are the people we're supposed to try to befriend. Um, I studied abroad in Spain, my junior year, spring of my junior year. And it was while I was there that I had a roommate whose name, we'll, we'll call him Jordan. Call him Jordan. And if you've heard me talk about Jordan, I may have used a different name at a different time. But uh, Jordan, I really do think, is probably the worst human being I've ever met in my entire life. And I say that, you're like, wow, that's a horrible thing to say. Let me explain to you a little bit about Jordan. Jordan would, um, when a girl would walk by us that he found attractive, would turn around and walk backwards with his head tilted to get a better view of the girl. When Jordan would walk by people having conversations, he would often shout, keep in mind, we're in Spain. He would shout, learn English or move uh, to people who would walk. Like, by the way, we're not in America, which for the record, that would be kind of racist and wrong to do that. But he, but, but like he would do this in another country because of how big his hubris was, right? And then you think about, on top of all that, one day I, 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 got, so, like, I got so exasperated by him uh, that I asked him just point blank. I was like, dude, what do you want out of life? Because he, well, okay, one time he was hitting on a girl while we were out at a club and I challenged him on it because he had a girlfriend. And he literally looked me in the eye and said, what she doesn't know won't hurt her. Um, maybe he's not the worst human being, but he definitely did not care if I said that, I don't think. Um, I asked him one day, what do you want out of life? Because it seems like you're burning a lot of bridges. You're really mean to a lot of people. Like, I just got to tell you, like, it's, it's not, I don't feel like this is going to go very well for you. And he looked me in the eye and he said, my goal in life is to screw everybody else over before they screw me over. That is what he told me, right? Uh, listen, I'm sure Jordan has his own, has reasons that he feels that way. People will probably hurt him and all that kind of stuff. I'm not trying to dump on him. What I am saying is that whoever that person is for you, right, that you find so difficult to love, the person that you think of that you're like, man, what a terrible person. Jesus is saying that guy, that guy, that girl, right, they are actually worthy of love. That that is somebody that you actually need to move toward in friendship and love. Now, am I saying that you need, again, 
I'm not saying that you should be with people and you should love people that are just hurting you, especially physically abusive or emotionally abusive people. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is when possible, right, even when it's costly, Jesus is saying that's the, that's the person who becomes a neighbor. You're not really a neighbor until you've loved the person who is costly. Uh, I don't want to challenge. I don't want to explain away the challenge uh, of the parable by saying, you know, that like, yes, you need to have good friends. Yes, like, there's tons of caveats to this. I understand that. But if you let this parable say what it's saying, right, at the very ba- at, at its root, Jesus is saying, real neighbor love, real friendship is costly, and who you're supposed to befriend is somebody who you're supposed to actually become a neighbor to is somebody who actually needs it. Right? Not people who are just easy to love all the time. Uh, maybe that's a particular uh, importance in a group like RUF, right? Where you might come and you might find fellow Christians. And like, if we believe this stuff and we do it well, I hope we actually are a group that really loves each other well enough and that it actually is kind of easy to befriend people in this group, right? That means that we can't be our only friends, right? If you're in this group and, and these are your only friends, like, it's just, this is, this is the challenge, right? Is that we got to move outside of who is easy and uncostly and into people who actually, uh, there's nothing in it for us to love them, right? That that's who we're supposed to go out and befriend. Right? And they, therefore, right, uh, it's worth, you know, just asking um, like who those people are for us. I'll say this, um, right? Noted it before, worth noting again, we're a white group on a non-white campus, right? Like part of what we've got to do is that like in your classes, like in your day-to-day living, like we have got to move out and love people that are not always the most comfortable for us to love. And that means even culturally. So that means not just black people, but brown people, like Mexicans, like people who just like, who aren't like you, right? Those, those people are the people that we are supposed to try and move out towards and love. Um, it's worth noting that like racism is really actually very central to the subject of this passage appropriate with Ibram uh, Kendi talking tonight. Like racism is a very central focus of this passage in the sense that uh, Jesus makes the hated Samaritan, the hero of the story. And it drives the, it drives this lawyer nuts. And you can tell it drives him nuts because when Jesus asks, which in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer can't even say the Samaritan, which is the most obvious way to describe him, right? Jesus describes the three guys as a Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan. And he describes them as the one who showed him mercy, right? Can't even bring himself to say that the Samaritan is a good person, right? Even hypothetically a good person. Let that be a lesson to us, right? That like part of what this parable challenges us to do is love people who like we might not normally move toward. And I'm not saying that you like hate black people or anything like that. What I'm saying is like, are you actively loving them, right? Or do you, or do you settle into your easiest group of like my white friends who are also Wonder Bread white like me? And I, I say that as somebody who, yes, tends to settle into Wonder Bread white groups and that's the easiest people to befriend. Like, man, this ought to push us out of there. That's what Jesus expects us. That's who Jesus expects us to befriend. I'll also say this. It also challenges our conventional wisdom. Um, 
C.S. Lewis has this quote about friendship that like friendship is born when like two people say like you too, like they have this thing in common and that like commonality is the basis of all friendship. I'm not saying it's not, but if you think about what people have in common, like what is Jesus saying these two men have in common? And the truth is need, right? Like this Samaritan has a need. Uh, Like, you know, I just said like all the problems that he has in his life, right? He has a great need that this Jewish man actually can fill like on some level, right? And if you think about the Jewish man lying on the side of the road, his need is maybe a little more obvious that he's dying and needs help, right? Uh, The truth is like, if we think about that, then that means, you know what you have in common with every single person on this campus? You have the same need, right? That you have sinned, that you go your own way, that you are, are on some level, not the Samaritan in this story, but the guy on the side of the road half dead <laughs> because you have fallen among robbers and you need a good Samaritan to come and love you and rescue you and take you out of your sin and misery and to care for you. And that's, I mean, that's the story of every single person on this campus, which means that you do have something in common with everybody who's here. They're all looking for significant status. They're all looking for the deep longings that, that you are. Just might, you know, like, like folks like Kyle, you might have to spend some time. Lo- oh, I said Kyle, shoot. <laughs> well, there goes that. Uh, Jordan, <laughs> I meant. Um, folks like Jordan, you're going to have to love him, right? You're going to have to, like, care for them a lot, a lot longer than what's going to be advantageous to you, right? Now... How do we do that, right? How do we possibly sustain a love uh, for someone that we you know, might not even like that much? We don't have a ton in common. Maybe that's the only thing you have in common with somebody. Maybe here in RUF, right? The only thing you really have in common with some of the folks here is that like, I guess we both love Jesus or we're trying to or whatever, right? Here's what, here's what I would say is, first, you got to understand that you're not, you actually aren't the good Samaritan, right? I just described it. Who you really are in this parable Bye, Benji. Uh, who you really are in this parable is you are the man on the side of the road, right? You need a good Samaritan to come and find you and pick you up. And that makes Jesus the good Samaritan, right? If you're going to be this person who actually does love people, it, it, you're not going to do it without first recognizing who Jesus is, the one true Samaritan, um, you know, uh, like the Samaritan, right, if we think about it, Jesus became our neighbor, uh, that he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and gives that up to come be us, the most costly of friendships. Right? If you think about uh, the cost you know, born, it's not just that he gives up heaven, but also incurs God's wrath. He dies on the cross to satisfy the debt that you and I have taken on as sinners. Right? That he has to punish that somehow. He's got to punish the thing, the ways that we've hurt other people. They can't go unpunished or else God isn't just. And so Jesus has to step in on our behalf. He gives up his very life. Right? Uh, the, the Samaritan here isn't even as good as Jesus in that way. Right? Uh, Samaritan doesn't actually end up dying. He's willing. Jesus is willing so much that he really does give up his life for us. Jesus is the epitome of what this good Samaritan embodies. And so when we get to the end of this parable, right, he says to, the, to this lawyer, you go and do likewise. 
Go and not just who is your neighbor, but go and become a neighbor, right? Not I've told you who your neighbor is. Now go and do it. Go and become one, right? Uh, that you have, might have to cross boundaries. You might have to incur costs. Go and become one. For the lawyer in this passage that's self-justifying, that's trying to limit who he has to love, man, that's the most condemning way to end <laughs> this discussion. But if you're in Christ tonight, right? If you know Jesus, if you know him as your good Samaritan who has loved you and cared for you, this is the most gentle and encouraging uh, response you could possibly hear that you can go and do likewise. That Jesus invites you to participate with him as a Samaritan in this world that desperately needs people who will stop and pick up dying people on the side of the road. God has given us his spirit to do just that. We can hear this charge as good news, not as condemnation. We can do that. We can go and do likewise because Jesus has done that with us. We can, in a way, we could never earn. Let's pray.